Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The Lumbee tribe played a key role on this day 65 years ago in a tense standoff that sent members of the Ku Klux Klan running from a planned rally. The show of force by the tribe was one of the few times in the burgeoning civil rights movement that citizens successfully stood up to southern white supremacists bent on terrorizing people of color. Miraculously, there were few serious injuries in the armed skirmish known as the Battle of Hayes Pond. We'll find out about this historic event and how it continues to be a source of Lumbee pride right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Officials at a First Nation in Saskatchewan say they've located more than 2,000 anomalies after using radar at the site of a former Indian residential school. As Dan Karpinchuk reports, they have not yet been confirmed as human remains. The ground search of the former Capel Indian residential school began about a year and a half ago with the help of ground-penetrating radar. So far, searchers have found a jawbone fragment believed to be from a child of five or six years of age. The bones were dated about 1898. Ground search project leader Sheldon Poitras says this is physical proof of an unmarked grave. This discovery here at this site just, just validates what we've, what we've always known. It validates to the world uh, that, that those stories uh, have some merit. In addition to the more than 2,000 anomalies, searchers found underground rooms or tunnels. Poitras says the data and the stories from survivors of the former residential school is motivation to continue searching. He says there's been talk about some drilling to bring up samples and test for DNA. The chief of the Star Blanket Cree Nation, Michael Starr, says the discoveries so far are significant. It's changed the things that we're going to do. It's changed our mindset. It's changed our... Our way of life. Some surrounding property owners have agreed to allow searches on their property that's near the former school site. Poitras says the site of the former school is located in the village of Labret, about 50 miles northeast of Regina. The school was opened in 1884, and in 1951 it became one of the first residential schools to offer a high school program. The report from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission said the school had a high death rate. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said he was saddened and disturbed by the finding of a child's remains along with potential unmarked graves. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. This week, hundreds of people gathered in Utkiavik to remember Oliver Levitt, a whaling captain and expert on Arctic survival and an influential Alaska Native leader. He played a role in developing the North Slope Borough and ASRC, a regional Native corporation, which today is Alaska's largest private company. Chairman of the board for the Arctic Slope Regional Corporation, Crawford Pukatuk led the memorial service for Levitt, who died last week at the age of 79. He recalled how Levitt championed efforts to develop the slope's oil, coal, and natural gas. He was a staunch fighter for rights to the resources. Willie Hensley, a friend of Levitt's for 50 years, says the two worked together to implement the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, becoming strong advocates in Washington, D.C. Our nation's capital became his hunting ground, and he was good at it. This is the kind of job that most Inupiat wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. But he did his duty for all of us, and 
He understood who had the power. U.S. Alaska Senator Lisa Murkowski was among leaders who attended the service, saying Levitt taught her how to fight more effectively for Alaska causes. It's important for you to understand how Oliver touched the world. Murkowski says leaders across the country have been influenced by Levitt, whose efforts raised the level of empowerment for all Alaska Native people. A flag was flown at the nation's capital in his honor and will be given to his family. Tribal leaders and U.S. New Mexico lawmakers are gathering in Albuquerque Wednesday to celebrate the STOP Act becoming law. The Safeguard Tribal Objects of Patrimony Act prohibits the exporting of sacred Native American items and increases penalties for stealing and illegally trafficking tribal cultural patrimony. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. Support for the menu comes from Spirit Mountain Roasting Company, a small batch specialty coffee roaster located on the Fort Yuma Quetzon Reservation. Information and online ordering at spiritmountainroasting.com slash news. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. When the Ku Klux Klan organized a rally near Maxton, North Carolina in the late 1950s, they didn't count on hundreds of armed Lumbees to show up in resistance. The event, 65 years ago today, became known as the Battle of Hayes Pond. It's a major event in North Carolina history that continues to be recounted in news articles and historical research. An account was used in a recent campaign video for North Carolina congressional candidate Charles Graham. When I was a young boy, the KKK announced a night rally in my home county. A cross burning with hundreds of Klansmen to terrorize the blacks and Lumbee. We were a poor farming community, black, white, and Indian. My parents and grandparents were sharecroppers like many. The police chief warned the Grand Dragon, these people don't want your trouble. The Klansmen called us mongrels, half-breeds and told him the Klan would show him how to handle people like us. That night, they rolled in with their cars, their crosses, and a single light bulb hooked to a car battery. 50 Klansmen. Not a bad turnout on a cold night. Problem is, they were surrounded by 400 Lumbees. Seminoxendine had been a tail gunner in a B-29 during the war. Verdia Locklear was four months pregnant. Neil Lowry was the local barber. Hundreds of normal folks deciding to stand together against ignorance and hate. Lowry shot out the light. The Klansmen scattered. By the time the sheriff arrived to fish them out of the swamp, the press was running with the story. The Battle of Hayes Pond. This hour, we'll talk with Lumbee tribal members about the Battle of Hayes Pond and other tribal history. We'll also hear about the tribe's ongoing struggle to gain federal recognition. As always, we welcome our listeners to the conversation. Do you know of a similar historical event that remains a source of pride for your tribe? Have you 
or anyone you know ever had a run-in with the KKK? Share your thoughts at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. You can also post on our social media page. Our Twitter handle is 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us now from Pembroke, North Carolina, is Dr. Lawrence Locklear. He is the Director of the Office of Student Inclusion and Diversity and Adjunct Associate Professor in the Department of American Indian Studies, both at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. He is Lumbee. Dr. Locklear, welcome to the show. Welcome, welcome. Glad to be on the show today. Lawrence, please start us off by explaining the events that led up to this battle, the Battle of Hayes Pond. Yeah, so let me give you a little context behind it, and it kind of helps explain a little bit more what happened that day. Uh, when World War II started, you know, it changed to the Lumbee community and changed the United States. Um, there were a lot of Lumbee men and women who joined the military uh, and left our community. They, they, when they joined the military, they received this uh, training in the Army. A lot of uh, Lumbees also left to go work in urban areas like Baltimore, Detroit, Philadelphia. And when they uh, migrated to these urban areas and joined the military, they were they were in places that were no longer seg segregated like their home community. And once the war ended and the 1940s came to a close and the early 1950s started, many of them were coming back to the Lumbee community and they started asking questions like, why is it still this way in, in my community? You know, what can we do to change this? And so in 1958, when the Klan decided to have a rally in Maxton, Lumbee people had made up their minds, you know, enough is enough. You know, we've lived in cities. We've, we've fought for our country. Why does it still have to be this way in our, in our community? And that was sort of the context and the the start for this event. And then tell us what happened on that night, 65 years ago. Yeah, so uh, so Lumbee people heard there was going to be a rally in Maxton. They bought up every, the oral history goes, they bought up every single gunshot shell that was available in the town of Pembroke. Uh, Maxton and Pembroke are separated by about 10 or 15 miles. And so um, the KKK met in Maxton down this long road. They met on this farm, which was outside of the town. Uh, so there's no electricity. The only light there that night was that one single bulb that, that you mentioned earlier. And so Lumbee people showed up in force that night. There were men, there were women, and there intent was to prevent the Klan from meeting that night. Uh, in the photos that were taken that night by photographers um, in Life magazine, the Klan were on one side and the Lumbees were on the others, other. And uh, Mr. Sanford Locklear, who's pictured in those photos, um, uh, approached one of the Klan members. And if you got a second, I want to read you a short quote that he, uh, that he said that night about uh, when he met the Klan member. He said, he said when he walked up to him, he said, quote, I asked him what, what he was doing here. He said, uh, we come to, to to talk to these people. I said, well, you ain't, you ain't going to talk to these people tonight. He said, yes, I am. I said, no, you ain't. And so words were exchanged, you know, and about that, and about that time I pushed on him and pushed him back and I throw the gun on him. I pushed him, you know, and I throw the gun on him and I told him not to move and don't you move. If you do, well, I'll kill you. That's what I said. And he had his light up there. My brother-in-law shot, he shot the light out. And when he shot the light out, I kicked this tape player, tape player recorder, end quote. So Mr. Sanford showed up me basically, like he said, he threw the guy, the gun in the guy's face and he said he uttered a few words that he didn't want to share with me. Um, and the light got shot out and then all heck broke loose. People started shooting. People were running, uh, uh, hiding under their cars. The, the clans 
the Klansmen saw what was going on, and they literally ran into a swamp. For those of you who are not familiar with swamps in the south, it's the kind of place you don't want to be late at night because there are just animals and other things in there that will <laughs> that will eat you, uh, you know, if you if you don't not mindful of where you're at. And so, uh, so the Lumbee people literally chased the Klan um, into into the swamp and out of Robinson County. Okay, you just painted a, a, re- a really vivid picture there, Lawrence, of a swamp and, and guns and a light getting shot out. And miraculously, nobody was killed, though. As far as we know, yeah, no one was killed. And as far as we know, no one was injured. But you got to think about it. If some, if a Klan member had been injured that night, I don't think that's something that they wanted to publicly state because they were humiliated by these, these Indian people. And so I don't think they wanted to promote that. But as far as we know, no one was injured that night, seriously injured. Yes. Now, as I read it, it wasn't a, a local Ku Klux Klan chapter. It was actually a group from South Carolina that traveled up to, to North Carolina? Yeah, there were connections to South Carolina, connections to North Carolina. Uh, the, 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 the lead Klansman, uh, was, his name was James Catfish Cole, um, and I think he had connections to Greensboro in North Carolina, which is about two hours north of uh, Pembroke. But there were Klansmen there from uh, various places, and I imagine there were probably some Klansmen there from Robinson County, too. Catfish Cole, <laughs> that name is just classic there. So, okay, so then what happens? So the Klan scatters, they get outnumbered, they, they get, get outshot. Do they, do they ever rally back again? Do they reconvene, or where do they go? Well, let me tell you how this event ended. This is really what's funny about it and what we joke about. Um, I think about 8 o'clock that night, the sheriff of the county, he had warned Cole, do not come to Robson County and hold this rally because Lumbees will harm you. And so about 8 o'clock, he drove down. He stopped what was going on. He took guns from the Lumbees, and he told Lumbees to go home and watch gun smoke. Every single <laughs> Lumbee I've ever interviewed about this remembered the sheriff telling them to go home and watch gun smoke. He said that was a, a popular uh, cowboy uh, western show at the mm-hmm. time. But um, he took their guns. Everyone went home. Um, Colt. Catfish Cole and one of the Klansmen were charged uh, for, I forgot what, drunkenness, a few other things that night. But Lumbees went home, and um, interestingly enough, we didn't speak publicly about this event for a very long time because you got to remember things were still segregated and Indian people were afraid of retaliation in their community. So we didn't really begin to celebrate this publicly as a tribal community until maybe the mid to late 80s. Okay. Well, you mentioned gun smoke, and uh, unless you're about 50 years old like me, I think the only reason you'd ever know about gun smoke is if you watch the Grit Network. But uh, Lawrence, thank you so much for for getting the show started here and giving us such a good history there. Let's bring in our next guest now. Speaking with us in Durham, North Carolina, is Dr. Ryan Emanuel. He is an associate professor at Duke University and an enrolled member of the Lumbee Tribe. Ryan, you've been here before. Welcome back to NAC. Yes, thank you so much. I'm delighted to be back. The Battle of Hayes Pond strikes a strong chord within your family. Your mother was eight years old on that fateful January night in 1958. Please tell us about her experience. Yeah, thanks for that. So both of my parents were were children at the time, both living in different Lumbee communities within Robinson County. Uh, my mother grew up on a, a farm just outside of Pembroke, and um uh, my mom tells me the story of um, quiet tensions and whispers among the adults leading up to the events of that night. But once people started um, rolling out of Pembroke towards Maxton, um, she has distinct memories of um, 
being being shuffled under the bed uh, along with her two siblings, my aunt and uncle, and the, the three of them uh, were forced to hide under the bed in their home while my, my grandmother um, kept watch over the house um, armed. And so my, my grandparents, my maternal grandparents, um, were actually married shortly after World War II, and it connects with the, the story that Lawrence told about the, the Lumbee migration out of Robinson County. My, my grandmother, a Lumbee woman, uh, went to Northern Virginia to work for the Department of Defense during the war, and there she met my, uh, my grandfather, uh, a white man from eastern Tennessee. Uh, the two of them were um, were married shortly after World War II, and then they moved back um, to North Carolina um, in in the early 1950s. I want to note that when they were married, um, they were married illegally. Uh, they lived in Virginia, and that's famously where the the Loving Supreme Court case originated that outlawed um, uh, the, the 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 banning of interracial marriages by by states. So that discriminatory practice was still in effect um, when my grandparents were married. But one of the motivations for the Klan rally on January 18, 1958, um, had to do with uh, interracial marriages and relationships that were perceived by the Klan to be this um, abomination or whatever. I don't know. Uh, but there were, there were cross burnings leading up to um, the rally on January 18th that targeted um, interracial couples in Robinson County. My grandfather at the time was a long distance trucker and he was out of town. So my grandmother was worried that, that she would be targeted because of her relationship with my grandfather. And so um, she stood watch. And it just it's hard to imagine a world where an elementary school teacher is forced to arm herself and Yeah, absolutely. Ryan, I'm sorry, we're going to have to take a short break, but uh, we'll be right back, and I want to hear more of your family's experiences. At least two Montana officials publicly espoused viewpoints about the state's tribes recently that go counter to basic civil and legal rights. They join a growing chorus of anti-Native rhetoric and policy proposals aimed to diminish sovereignty and tribal political power. Does such talk have any real influence? We'll find out in the next Native America Calling. Medicaid. Medicaid sin kulamin, pots me ses, fluosinal shetin sienum, smammy tin centers qual Medicare u Medicaid services. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're hearing from different Lumbee citizens about a night 65 years ago when hundreds of Lumbees confronted the KKK and what resulted in an armed skirmish. Is the Ku Klux Klan or any other white supremacist group active near your community? Call in and tell us about it. 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. On the line now in Durham, North Carolina, is Ryan Emanuel. And Ryan, before break, you were telling us uh, one of the motivators for the KKK uh, staging this attempted rally uh, up in North Carolina 65 years ago was the whole issue of interracial marriage and uh 
please tell us more. Yeah, well, you know, that my my family experience um, involved that fear over being targeted because of my grandparents' relationships. But I also imagine that, um, you know, that, that most folks in the Lumbee community were, were feeling pretty nervous that evening, um, especially if they had loved ones who had gone to participate in the rally. Um, so it was really a, a, a community-wide concern and probably not just limited to people who had you know, experience the, the 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 terrorism of having crosses burned on their properties, or or, or you know, feared for their safety because of the the people whom they loved. Absolutely, and to to hear the story of your mother, just a young child at the time, hiding under the bed, is just uh, really really shocking. Uh, let's go ahead and listen to another account. Uh, we're going to listen to an audio excerpt from someone who was there during the confrontation with the KKK. The Museum of the Southeast American Indian at the University of North Carolina Pembroke interviewed a number of people about their experience that night. Ferdia Locklear was among those they spoke with. She was 24 years old in 1958, and this is an edited down version of her 2018 interview in which she talked about going to the KKK rally with her husband, Wiley. They was gonna run us out of our homes. That was their intention. So we went, and when when we got there, they had the platform for the guy to to catfish to do his talking. When he started talking uh, on the microphone, they started shooting. They didn't let him talk, period. He got gone. They were shocked because they had no dreams that we would be there like we were. If we wouldn't have gone, they would have come back and they would have had more than what they did have. In fact, they put in the paper the next week that they would be in St. Paul's. And an Indian better not be there. That, that was the talk that was in the paper. So Wiley, my husband, he looked at me, he said, you want to let's go? I said, yeah, let's go. So we went to St. Paul's, but nobody came. If they did, they hid. We didn't sell one that night. I feel like we we made a difference. I'll put it like that. I feel like we made a difference. That is the late Verdia Locklear from a 2018 interview she did with the Museum of the Southeast American Indian at UNC Pembroke. Ryan, this is just such a, a fascinating story, and uh, I, I had never heard it before until... Um, uh, l- late last year during the campaign and, and, of course, the Charles Graham video that came out was just such a, a really powerful video. And um, are you aware of other groups, Ryan, uh, during that time, during the late 1950s, standing up to the KKK in North Carolina? Um, I'm I'm sure there are multiple examples. The, on- the only one that I have read about um, was occurred around the same time, and an African-American community in Monroe, North Carolina, 
which is almost two hours away from Robinson County, um, stood up to the, the, the Ku Klux Klan in, in their part of the state. Um, I don't know many of the details about that encounter, but it, it leads me to believe that, that there may be many other untold stories um, of resistance to the Klan that, you know, that, that need to have light shined on them. Lawrence, how about you? Uh, any other examples of similar resistance uh, during that time in North Carolina? Uh, not that I'm aware of, unfortunately. Okay. And and how about uh, the Ku Klux Klan now in North Carolina? Is it active in, in Robeson County or other areas near Lumbee Country? Lawrence? Um, if, the, if the Klan is active here in Robeson County, they're, they're not public. Um, I think the Klan is definitely still active in North Carolina, but I don't think they've done anything publicly uh, here since that time uh, because I think they're afraid of retaliation from the Indian community if they do. <laughs> they learned their lesson that first time probably. Ryan, how about you? Have you heard of any other uh, rallies or any Klan activity in any part of North Carolina in recent years? Yeah, uh, no. I'm sure, like Lawrence said, um, I'm sure they are around. And I'm sure that there are some activities, but none of those are happening publicly in or around Lumbee territory. All right. Now, here we are, 2023. This event occurred 65 years ago. In some ways, our country has changed so much. And in other ways, maybe it hasn't changed quite as much with some of the recent social and political turmoil that we've experienced. So what do you want our listeners to really take away from this story of the Battle of Hayes Pond? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great, great question. I think it's important to remember that it's, it, it's not that long ago that we lived in an environment of racial apartheid here in the South and in other places across the U.S. Um, you know, it, I, I talk on the phone and, and give hugs to people who, who remember that, um, that time distinctly, you know, and, and I don't want the, I don't want the closeness of it to be lost on people who are growing up today and may not have that same connection um, with people who were there and who remember the events um, of Hayes Pond. So that, that will be the takeaway for me is just remember that it wasn't that long ago. Wasn't that long ago. Let's go ahead and bring another perspective into the conversation. Joining us now from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, is Chelsea Barnes. She is an attorney and senior associate at Nelson Mullins Riley in Scarborough. She is Lumbee. Chelsea, welcome. Thank you. Chelsea, when did you first learn about the Battle of Hayes Pond? Um, you know, I've tried to think about that and pinpoint it, and I can't be certain, but I know that it was when I was a child. Um, couldn't be more specific than that, though. And what was your initial reaction hearing this story as a child? Um, I remember, you know, hearing the story and just being really proud of, you know, my heritage and who I was. I think my mother or my grandmother told me about it. Um, and I think, you know, you don't often hear stories like that. So to me, it was really inspiring and something that, you know, I felt should be shared far and wide. And earlier I asked Ryan what people need to understand and what we need to take away from this story. And can you add to that? What do you think the, the message here today in 2023 is? Um, I think when we think about issues of 
you know, race and diversity, it's always uh, sometimes painted as an issue of black and white, and I think it's a lot uh, more complex than that. And I think especially, you know, in our society today, as we're continuing to navigate, um, you know, newer versions of these issues, you know, racism still exists. Maybe it's not, you know, so quote-unquote in your face, um, but I think that these are still important issues to think about, and I think that this is a good example of, you know, what confronting that can look like. I think it's a good, important piece of education for our children um, to be, you know, reminded of what their ancestors did and, you know, an inspiration for them in terms of, you know, what they can do to make our, uh, you know, world today a better place. I think we would be amiss not to acknowledge, you know, that there's still racial tension in the South and specifically, um, you know, in the heart of the Lumbee community as well. So I think that's something important, uh, you know, to just keep in mind. And I think this can be a source of inspiration for us. And Chelsea, Lumbee children today, the Battle of Hayes Pond, do they learn about this in, in schools and, and other programs there within the community? So I grew up a little bit outside of the tribal community um, in a suburb of Fayetteville, North Carolina. Um, so I can't speak to what the children learn in Robinson County, which is where most of the Lumbee community is centered. Um, but I certainly hope that they do. Um, I, I, you know, I have friends who are raising children there now, and I know that, um, you know, there's an intense focus on, you know, uh, teaching, you know, things of cultural significance. I would expect that this definitely is something that comes up, but I can't be certain. Mm -hmm. And do you know of any events uh, planned either for today or, or later this week to commemorate this event from 65 years ago? I will defer to some of the other callers um, okay. to see if, if they know of anything. I, I don't specifically, but I do know that the tribe is highlighting um, some of the history and significant components related to it on their Instagram page. So there might be some announcements there, too. Okay. Wonderful. Wonderful. Uh, Lawrence, how about you? Are you familiar with any events, anything else going on? No, I would just echo what, what Chelsea said. You know, uh, social social media is being used to promote um, this event, you know, widely. Tribal members are sharing. I'm seeing non-tribal members share it. So I think uh, I'm seeing plenty of, of action on um, social media, but I don't know about in person. And Lawrence, the Battle of Hayspond, I mean, when you reflect now on, on Lumbee history and, and just so many events over the years, and and where where does the Battle of Hayes Pond kind of fit in in that narrative of just the overarching uh, experience of, of Lumbee people over, say, the last hundred years or so? Um, I think I think it's one of the more prominent events, formative events in Lumbee history because uh, Lumbee people have struggled since Europeans first arrived to assert their identity and to step out of the shadows and say, hey, we're here, recognize us. You know, Indian people are still here. And you had this event in 1950 where Lumbee people finally did that and it received national attention. And so I think for the first time, uh, people nationally were talking about the Lumbee people and who we are in this one moment in time. That, that truly reflected the struggle that, that we have faced and fought against for the past 400 years. Um, and so um, I think all that came to a head that night in that, in that swamp outside of Maxton where Indian people said, enough is enough. This is my community. You don't belong here. Nothing that you do in this organization brings value to us as a society and a people, and we don't stand for it, so get out. So I think this was finally that one opportunity where we stood up and said, hey, we're Lumbee. This is our home, and we're here, and we're going to protect it. 
Anyone listening with a question or comment for today's show, we are talking about this historic event 65 years ago, the Battle of Hayes Pond, when a large group of Lumbee tribal members confronted a Ku Klux Klan rally. There are active KKK chapters in 41 U.S. states, uh, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, with between 5,000 and 8,000 active members. Uh, interesting statistic there uh, to take note of. Again, anybody with a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. Let's bring another perspective into the conversation now. Joining us in Pembroke, North Carolina, is Tammy Maynard. She's the Director of Governmental Affairs for the Lumbee Tribe, and she is Lumbee. Welcome to Native America Calling, Tammy. Thank you for this opportunity. I'm pleased to be with you today. You bet, Tammy. And anything to add to the story of the Battle of Hayes Pond? Well, I will share that the tribe will be posting um, an invite on for Friday at 10 a.m. We have two individuals who will be hosting a Zoom, Mr. Dr. Jim Jones and Jack Lowry will be speaking on their account, their um, remembrance of that day. They were actually there at the battle, and they're going to speak on that day. And that will be by Zoom, uh, 10 o'clock a.m., and that um, Zoom link will be uh, pushed out later today uh, for everyone to be able to log on and hear their recount of that night. So I think that's going to be a great conversation between Jim and Jack. Well, Tammy, thank you for that information. Let's shift gears now and talk about the present. Uh, federal recognition for the Lumbee tribe, what's the status now? Well, um, as you know, Congress just um, wrapped up back in December and we fell short for our federal recognition uh, last year at the end of the, you know, in the 11th hour, lots of effort was put forth by um, our senators, Senator Tillis and Senator Byrne, of course, in the House, on the House side, G.K. Butterfield, but we did come up short on our federal recognition. Um, had a tough year. I think there was a lot of effort. A lot of good things came out of the past year. Of course, our Lumbee bill was introduced in both houses. It was an identical bill. In previous years, we've had different-looking bills introduced, but this past year, we had a. They were identical, um, and the decision was made to focus on the House first, and that resulted in a swift, non-controversial passage of the bill. Uh, I think some of our greatest successes over the past year were, uh, of course, with G.K. Butterfield and the House of Representatives, where we saw great bipartisan support and effort to introduce that legislation. Um, G.K. Butterfield, being a senior member of the majority, was very, very helpful. This legislation um, had great support in the House with the House Natural Resources Committee, our ranking member of the committee. We had um, the Indigenous Peoples Subcommittee who supported the bill, as well as all of, you know, most of North Carolina's, as well as most of North Carolina's delegation. So it looked like a, a bipartisan bill, and um, it got a lot of bill support also from the Native American caucus. On the Senate side, uh, we had definite support from uh, Tillis and Burr, and, you know, Burr has um, since retired. Okay. And, and just to clarify, Ted, these are the North Carolina uh, U.S. North senators. North Carolina senators, yes. And Ted Budd has now uh, replaced uh, Senator Burr. Um, we did have holds placed on our um, 
you know, some holds were placed on our Lumbee recognition bill. But those, um, as our bill moved through, our senators then turn around, our state senators placed holds on other Indian bills to try, which brought awareness to our Lumbee bill, of course, that was moving through the process. And, um, but in good faith, in a good faith effort to show, so, to show Senator Schatz, who was the um, chair of the Senate Indian Affairs Committee and the 11th hour, our Congress, our senators did allow some Indian legislation to pass that was needed for the rest of Indian country. So even though our bill did not pass, we were able to get some critical Indian legislation passed this past year. But we did have a lot of tribal support um, mm -hmm. across the country for our Lumbee recognition efforts. Folks, we're going to talk more with Tammy Maynor and our other guests about the Lumbee's quest for federal recognition. Uh, but before we do that, we are going to have to take a short break. And anybody with a question or comment today's show, if you'd like to learn more about the Battle of Hayes Pond or if you've ever had any experience uh, with the KKK, we'd sure love to hear about it. 1-800-996-2848. This month and every month, remember, one in three Native American adults have high blood pressure. Check it at your nearest community health center. If the numbers are above 120 over 80, talk to a health care professional. Native community well-being is very important. You can take action by visiting heart.org slash hbpcontrol. This support provided in partnership with HHS slash OMH and HRSA under cooperative agreements CPIMP 2112-27 and CPIMP 2112-28. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Plenty of time still to get in on our discussion about the Battle of Hayes Pond, as well as the status of the Lumbee Tribe's efforts to gain federal recognition. You can join our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848, 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We're speaking with Tammy Maynard, Director of Governmental Affairs for the Lumbee Tribe, and Tammy, uh, with regard to the federal recognition, the bill uh, moved through the House okay, but uh, didn't get through the Senate. So tell us more. I mean, what, what, what's going on here? What are, what are the, the roadblocks and, and what are the obstacles that you folks are facing there in the Senate and elsewhere that's preventing uh, the recognition? Uh, in a nutshell, it's the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. They are the biggest obstacle that we have. They've done a really good job at spreading um, a lot of mistruths and misleading congressional staff and Congress through their marketing efforts that they have. They have a lot of money, and they have the money to fight our recognition efforts. Um, you know, for when we walk into a congressional office and they ask, oh, so there's 200,000 Lumbees. That's, that's misinformation that's been put out. No, there are not 200,000 enrolled Lumbees. We have 65,000 enrolled Lumbee uh, tribal members, of which around 35,000 are actively enrolled. Uh, that means they, they have come in, they've updated their tribal card, they're eligible for tribal services, you know, if they choose to apply. Those are the kinds of things that we are battling. Um, they've They've put out that there's uh, this large number of tribes that are against Lumbee recognition, which is absolutely not true. Um, so one of the things that this tribal chairman, Chairman John Lowry, I think, 
did well this past year on the, in the realm of tribal diplomacy was seeking letters of support from tribes, and he did that in an unprecedented manner, in my opinion, on our Lumbee recognition. Um, we saw a huge increase in tribal nations supporting our efforts that helped us beat back a lot of uh, Eastern Band's broad claims against the Lumbee. The Lumbee also, you know, were able, we were able to participate in conferences on a more national level over the past year, especially since COVID and the impacts of that, such as um, NCAI, KNR, you know, your National American and Housing Council, RES. Um, these are important places where the tribe had uh, was visible and our chairman wanted us to be visible. And having uh, opportunities to be in D.C. more often, more frequently, was good for us. So um, those are the kinds of things that are good, but we need to do more of it. And in order for us to do those things, it takes unrestricted revenue and funds, and that's where uh, Eastern Band has us really in a, in a, at a disadvantage is because they do have the economic development and the money mm -hmm. to, to fight that we don't have. So we have to be really creative on how we do that. Okay. Now, uh, we don't have anybody from the Eastern Band of Cherokees on our show today, but uh, to summarize uh, what their contention is, I know that they will argue that uh, the Lumbee people do not have a language of their own. Um, at one point, the Lumbees were referred to as the Cherokees of Robson County, and I know they take umbrage with that. They take issue with uh, the identity of, of the Lumbee people uh, in regard to, uh, in fact, even, I mean, just the term Lumbee uh, doesn't go back that far. So, Tammy, when you, when, you know, when the Eastern Cherokee, when they make comments like that, and, and I mean, they even commissioned a study, they even paid somebody to, to do a study on the history of the Lumbee to, to support, you know, their position. And uh, what's your response to that when they say, well, you, you know, Lumbee don't have a language, they don't have separate ceremony associated with the culture? Um, and I think Tammy's gone, and she had to hold on. But Lawrence, um, if you still in line, Lawrence? Yes, sir. <laughs> okay, yeah, please, Lawrence. I mean, just respond to 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 what uh, the arguments are with Eastern Cherokee, if you could. Yeah, no, I think uh, when you look at ide Indian identity, it is core to about kinship and community. And you know, when a lot of people meet, one of the first questions we ask each other is, "Who's your people?" And that's a, that's a tribal custom that we have that that reflects on who who your your okay. blood. Folks, we're going to go ahead and listen to some music here just for a moment. Take a short break. Alrighty, folks, we are back uh, from a short break. And Tammy, are you there again? Yes, I am. Okay, Tammy. Well, I, I had to um, go ahead and take a short break, but but please, uh, if you could respond uh, more to to what I was saying with regard to to the Cherokees' argument against the Lumbee recognition. Yes. Um. It, it, before we were interrupted, the you know they do make claims that you know we have anytime there's been 
testimony given in Congress before the Senate, their claim has been that we have used their name, that we were called the Cherokee of uh, Robinson County. And that name was given to us by the state. That was not a name that the Lumbee chose to give themselves. The name we voted on is the name Lumbee. That's who we are, and we are very clear about, and we know who we are. So when they throw those things out there and they say that, it's it's to be a distraction. It's Mm -hmm. to um, intentionally, you know, mislead, and and that's part of where we have to do a better job at putting our facts out as a tribal government, and we have to figure out how to market ourselves just as well as Eastern Band has marketed themselves and their uh, contentions. Okay. Lawrence, anything to add to what Tammy says? No, I agree with what Tammy said about controlling the narrative. You know, we as Lumbee people, have, we know who we are. You know, when we meet, uh, we ask each other, who are people? Who's your people? And that's all about blood and community, and that's core to our identity, just like it is to any other American Indian community. You know, we are Lumbee dialect uh, that some of our listeners can probably hear um, is serves the same purpose as a tribal language. So it, we communicate things with each other as an Indian people that, you know, just like a tribal language would. And so the archaeological record supports that we've been here for thousands of years. We have the culture. Uh, we have the blood. We have the community. So, um, again, I, I agree with what Tammy said. It's about just controlling that narrative and getting the truth out there about who we are as Indian people. Because I encourage everyone, please come to the Lumbee community, especially during uh, July 4th, which is when we have Lumbee homecoming, and come celebrate the Lumbee people and learn who we are as a people. Uh, learn more, more about us. Uh, we probably have twenty to 30,000 people that come in, Lumbees that come into the small town of Pembroke uh, that weekend, and it's a great time just to celebrate being Lumbee. But I encourage other folks to come and join us. You'll have a great time and learn more about uh, who the Lumbee are. Tammy, I want to talk more about uh, the significance of of what federal recognition means to the Lumbee. And, uh, you know, some Native people might just, you know, well, it's obvious, you know, we want to be federally recognized. But if you could explain to our our listeners and and perhaps for folks that are listening on the air that might not be Native, because we do have non-Native listeners as well. I mean, what, why is it so important for the Lumbee people to be federally recognized in your view? One is that oftentimes I, I know my great-great-grandfather helped to he, – he was part of the original petition for our federal recognition over 125 years ago. So it meant something to them then, and it means just as much to us now, that we do not want to be treated like second-class Indian citizens. You know, we do a great job here at the Lumbee Tribe um, – we think service in our tribal members with federal programs. We receive quite a bit of federal dollars because of our status as Indian. We receive Indian housing block grant funds. We receive funding from the Department of Treasury. We, defend, we receive HHS funding. But what we don't get because of our status is the one thing that we truly, truly do need is funds for health care. We put such a burden on our county and our community and our state with our Medicaid and Medicare costs that that would be a huge financial burden off the county, not to mention what it would mean for the health of our citizens, especially our elders and youth that need health care. When, you know, you go to the doctor, and I've witnessed this where I was at the hospital with a uh, family member who has cancer, and because... You know, you have health insurance, the treatment's different. 
when you have the ability to pay the treatment is different. And it is so heart-wrenching to see Lumbee people who could receive treatment, who choose to go without treatment because they're afraid of the financial burden that it's going to place on the family. And they end up, you go back to another meeting or you go back to another doctor's visit and they're gone. It's because they passed away. They didn't have, they didn't feel like they had the options. And that's what federal recognition could change for us is the health care for our community. It could also help with education. And we battle this and we fight this, Lawrence and Ryan and different ones of us who are in this every day, that we want Lumbee students to recognize that education, we will help you. To, we work hard to remove those barriers for people so that they understand they can have a four-year degree, they can have a two-year degree, they can go to college. But it would be so much easier if we had Indian Health Services to help with grant, you know, with medical school. Indian Health Services to help with things, or BIA services to help with education, so that it doesn't appear to be out of reach, a quality education. It just okay. seems unsurmountable for some people. So federal recognition would transform our community. Okay. Let me bring Chelsea back into the conversation. Chelsea, anything to add to the issue of federal recognition for your people? Sure. Um I've uh, done some research on this in years past and had the opportunity to talk to folks who were heavily involved um, in those efforts early on. And I think, you know, it's obviously a very politicized issue, but I agree with Tammy, you know, for the reasoning of it being important. I think that the concept of sovereignty and recognition generally is is complex and difficult to understand, um, and especially um, with uh, the tribe, you know, taking the congressional route toward it, I think, you know, that that can be complicated and, you know, not something that even makes sense to most Native people. But I think, you know, it is, it is of merit, and it's unfortunate that it's being opposed in the way that it is. I think that um, the way I try to explain it to people in the professional setting is that there's this connotation that perhaps the pie isn't big enough for everybody, and I just don't think that that's the best way of looking at it. I think that you know, um, you know, we should all be trying to help each other. And I think that these services really would open up a lot of doors uh, for folks in the community. Mm -hmm. Well, Tammy, uh, what's next? I mean, obviously, the Eastern Band presents uh, a roadblock. And, and going forward, what do you think uh, the strategy needs to be uh, for your people in order to, to gain recognition? I don't want to speak for our tribal chairman, and uh, but I do want to say this, that I think the message has to look different because we are federally recognized. The 1956 Act recognized the Lumbee, but it terminated our services in the same language. So I think that we might need to consider looking at a different type of legislation that talk, we're not asking for federal recognition because we are recognized. We're looking for restoration of our services. I think there's ways we can um, work around that to fine tune what exactly that language is that we're looking for, that Congress is the only people who can fix it. They, they, they created this problem and they need to fix this problem. And it's definitely within their power to fix and they have that authority. And so, um, 
it's going to be interesting. I know the chairman is meeting with um, congressional leaders now. They've already started conversations uh, to discuss what the next steps are. But we will never give up on federal recognition for our Lumbee people. Mm-hmm. Lawrence, uh, I want to bring you back in. And, uh, okay, obviously the Eastern Band Cherokee uh, are against the Lumbee recognition. But what about other tribes? You know, all these other tribes all over the country, what kind of feedback do you get from those tribes with regard to to your quest for federal recognition? Well, that's a question I'd love to defer to Tammy. I think Tammy could probably better answer that than I could. Okay. Tammy, please. Yeah. um, You know, traveling and speaking and going to places, most people look at us and go, oh, you are just like us. And it's just like Lawrence said, once they meet us, once they get to talking to us, once they interact with us, and we have the same issues, the same the same concerns, the same, almost the same mannerisms when it comes to what a tribe looks like, they completely understand. Most tribes support Lumbee recognition efforts okay. or services to be restored. Okay. Um, I will say, Tammy, that there there were more than 100 tribes uh, that did officially oppose Lumbee recognition this last go-round. What's motivating those tribes? I mean, obviously, Eastern Band, they're there in your state of North Carolina, but these other tribes that oppose Lumbee recognition, what, what do you think is motivating them? That, if that number came from the Eastern Band that you're, that you're citing, when we went back and looked at our, um, and actually counted the tribes that were opposing us, it was less than 60. And mm. we did a real deep dive on that. Because we were very concerned to hear those uh, numbers as well. So it was less than 60 tribes actually opposed Lumbee recognition. And those tribes were tribes, people who signed on to certain legislate like paperwork, they signed it. And when you talk to the leadership, oh, we didn't realize that's what that was, that that was about Lumbee, that that was about Lumbee, you know. And so okay. you hear a lot about Lumbee needs to go through the process. All right. well, we can't. Uh, Tammy, real quick, I'm sorry, just we're going to have to wrap this uh-uh. up in about a minute, but, but what do you say to those tribes, those 60 tribes that, that you cite? I mean, how do you reach them? I think it has to be that one-on-one conversation that the chairman's having with tribes across the United States now, that one-on-one conversation with leadership, with their tribal chairmen, with their governors, whatever they may have, that one-on-one conversation works. Folks, we have reached the end of our hour. I want to thank our guests today, Dr. Lawrence Locklear, Dr. Ryan Emanuel, Chelsea Barnes, and Tammy Maynard, for sharing stories and insights about the Battle of Hayes Pond, as well as issues facing the Lumbee tribe today. Hope you'll join us here on Native America Calling again tomorrow. We'll take a look at recent damaging anti-tribal rhetoric from public officials that stirs public opinion and may even influence policy. I'm Sean Spruce. Thanks for listening. Looking for opportunities to expand, improve, and share your artistic talents? The Crazy Horse Memorial has programs for indigenous artists, culture bearers, and educators of North America, including funding, an artist residency, a speaker series, performance opportunities, and more. The Crazy Horse Memorial Foundation mission is to protect and preserve the cultures, traditions, and living heritages of North American Indians. Application deadline is January 31st at crazyhorsememorial.org who support this show. This month and every month, remember, one in three Native American adults have high blood pressure. 
Check it at your nearest community health center. If the numbers are above 120 over 80, talk to a healthcare professional. Native community well-being is very important. You can take action by visiting heart.org slash HBP control. This support provided in partnership with HHS slash OMH and HRSA under cooperative agreement CPIMP 211227 and CPIMP 211228. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.